All right, John chapter 4. Verse 1, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Let's pray. Father, we thank you right now for your awesome word. We thank you for what you're going to do in this house tonight. You're going to speak to us, Lord. We know you're going to give us understanding that maybe we've never had before. We give you all praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Brother Patrick, will you do me a favor? There is a map that's in my office on the ground there, okay? Praise the Lord. You can sit down. Good to see you again. <clears throat> Let's back up just a little bit and look at John chapter 2, 23. John 2, 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did, or the signs. Thank you, brother. Right? But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all italics men. 25. And needed not that any should testify of what? of man, for he knew what was in man. This is mankind. This is not gender specific. It's mankind. So if you're a uh, mankind, that means you're a woman or a man or etc. You are a part of mankind. So we looked at chapter 3, the first man that is a example of somebody who believes because they saw the miracles that Jesus did. And Jesus taught him the new birth. That was Nicodemus. Now, chapter 4, we come to the next example of mankind, but it is a woman, okay? A woman. Now, we're going to title this message tonight, Jesus and the Thirsty Woman. Jesus and the Thirsty Woman. Okay, so look there again. Chapter 4, the Bible says, Pharisees heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. When they heard that, they, of course, were very, very upset about that, that Jesus was having so many disciples come to him. So Jesus, of course, being rejected by the religious leaders of, Jer of Jerusalem, he leaves Judea. Say Judea. Now, Judea is his own tribe because he's of the tribe of Judah. You understand that, okay, let me talk to you just for a minute here. If you're a Jew, okay, you're an Israelite. You know what an Israelite is, right? You're a descendant of Jacob. All right, if you're a descendant of Jacob, then you're an Israelite. But a Jew is somebody that's of the tribe of Judah. So all Jews were Israelites, but not all Israelites are Jews. Okay, in a specific technical way. Does that make sense? So when Jesus leaves Judea, he's leaving the tribe of Judah. He's leaving the tribe which he's from, as far as his physical connection is concerned, of the tribe of Judah. He's a line of the what? Tribe of Judah. So he is leaving Judea. Now there's a tremendous revival that is taking place there. 
A lot of the Jews were coming to him and being saved, but in Jerusalem, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are rejecting him, and this rising animosity toward Jesus Christ causes him to leave Judea. The Bible says in verse 3, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. The word left there means that he abandoned it. Okay? The opposition was so great, the animosity was so great toward the Lord Jesus Christ from the Pharisees, religious leaders of his day, that he literally abandoned Judea. That doesn't mean he's not going to go back there, but he will not go there very often for very long. Okay? So he's literally going to abandon that uh, place because of the opposition and rejection that he's facing from the religious leaders, and it's not time for him to die. So he leaves there, and he's going to go back up into Galilee. Now, as he travels from Judea to go back to Galilee, he's going to go through Samaria. Now, let me see if I can find it. I know I've got it here. I marked this a long time ago. You can see it. Judea, or Jerusalem, is in the south. Galilee is in the north. And so in order for him to get to Galilee, he's got to travel through Samaria or go around it, okay? All right, can everybody kind of see this? I'm going to show it to you this way. Okay, I'll start over here. Okay, down here in Judea, right here. He's going to travel right through Samaria. So Judea's in the south, Galilee's in the north, Samaria's in between the two. So as he travels from Judea to Galilee, he can go right through Samaria and reach Galilee. Are you going to see that halfway? <laughs> can you see that a little bit? Hey, Judea down here. There's Samaria, Sychar, Shechem. Here is Galilee. you see that? you see that line right there? Judea in the south, Samaria, then Galilee. Now, you'll notice another line that I have. It is on the outside. From here, Judea, he could have crossed over Jordan, traveled in the land of Perea, gone along the coast there, and then come up around Samaria into Galilee. Yes, I'll let y'all get that in your eyes out there. Y'all can see it. Does that make sense to you? Going around Samaria was the way most Jews traveled, especially uh, Jewish religious leaders, rabbis. In fact, a rabbi was not allowed to travel through Samaria. Okay? Does that make sense to you? So they'd go around take the long way around. But from Judea straight through Samaria up to Galilee is the quickest way. It's straight through. It's a direct shot. Does that make sense? Okay. So, in fact, a Jewish religious leader, if he went through Samaria, he would be put to death. Okay. The jurisdiction, if you were a Jerusalem rabbi, the law or the rules of Jerusalem stated that a Jewish rabbi from Jerusalem 
if he went through Samaria, he would lose everything that he had. Everything he had would be confiscated. If he had family, his family was put in jail. Okay? You with me so far? If he went into Samaria himself, he would be put to death. And that literally happened in history. So there was a tremendous hatred for the Samaritans from the Jerusalem Jews. So these rules were around Jewish rabbis. They could not go into Samaria. But Jesus was not a Jerusalem Jew rabbi. He was a Jew, according to the flesh, but he was from Galilee. So those rules did not apply to him, technically speaking. Okay, but it didn't really matter to him. He's going to break the rules anyway. Okay. There's a tremendous amount of prejudice here and a tremendous amount of hatred. And, and I mean, they are arch enemies. The Samaritans and the Jews are arch enemies. They hate each other with a passion. Okay? And you can see how desperate it was for a rabbi to go through Jerusalem and be put to death. That's pretty serious stuff. The prejudice is pretty high. Now, let me read to you a little bit further. So Jesus, the Bible tells us he's on his way to Galilee. He must needs go through Samaria. Why must he go through Samaria? It's a divine commission. It's the will of God for him to go through Samaria. He must needs go through Samaria, not just because it's the quickest way from Judea in the south up to Galilee in the north. But because it is a divine commission from the Spirit of God that's in him, in him for him to go to Samaria because there's going to be a woman he's going to talk to there. Okay? So he must needs go through Samaria. Wow. Okay? Then cometh he to a city of Samaria which is called Sychar. Say Sychar. This is one of the four mountain cities of Samaria. Now remember Samaria used to be the capital city of the northern kingdom. Remember that? The days of the kings? We preached that. So Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom, the ten tribes. You with me so far? Okay. And Sychar was one of those mountain cities in Samaria. Now, who are these Samaritans? Well, it tells us in verse 5. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, why was there so much hatred here between the Jews and the Samaritans? And let's start out by saying, who are the Samaritans? Anybody have any idea? Don't know about that. I mean, it's possible that they were half Jew and half Gentile. Okay, but let me get real technical with you here. And I've spent a lot of time looking at historical records and journals, etc., trying to determine who these people are. Okay, so it's not not really quite that easy just to say. Uh, thanks, brother. You got a mat? You want to put it on? Okay. It's not really that easy just to say, all right, they were half Jew, half Gentile, and, and that's it. I mean, that's a possibility that there were intermarriage that took place there. Okay, but let's go back into Second Kings chapter seventeen. Okay, go with me and find out why these people were so hated. Second Kings chapter seventeen and verse twenty-four. 
During the Assyrian captivity of Israel, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, in 721 to 722 B.C., Assyria came and captured those ten tribes, that northern kingdom, whose capital was Samaria. And after they captured uh, the ten tribes and carried, over, carried them over into Assyria, what they then did was they took colonies of Assyrian people, etc., a lot of different nationalities of people, the Assyrians took them, and planted them in Samaria in place of Israel or the ten tribes. The Assyrians left some of the poor Israelites in the land, but took, you know, most of the, uh, the hierarchy, the, the royal seed in the captivity. So anyway, they left a small population of Israelites in the land when they captured the northern kingdom in 721, 722 B.C., but beside those Jews that were left, or Israelites that were left in the land, the Assyrians brought Gentiles and planted them in the land among the Israelites that were still left there. Now, it is possible that they intermarried. It is possible that some of the Samaritans were half Jew and half Gentile. That is possible and probably high, highly likely. Very likely, okay? But it doesn't necessarily have to be the only way they are Samaritans. So let's look at 17 and 24. The king of Assyria brought men, this is in 2 Kings 17, the king of Assyria brought men from where? Babylon, from Kutha, from Abba, from Hamath, and from Sepharvaim, Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria. You see that? So we got five, say with me, five different colonies of different kinds of people that the Assyrians took and planted in Samaria, along with the poor Jews, or poor, I keep saying Jews, poor Israelites that were left in the land. So you had Gentiles and Jews living in that land. And no doubt there was an intermarriage, etc., etc., that took place. But a Samaritan did not have to be somebody that was half Jew and half Gentile. A, a, a Samaritan could have been one of these five. Babylonian, Kutha, Abba, Hamath, Seph, Arvam. Uh, Seph, Arvam. Okay? You get that? That makes sense? So when you talk about the Samaritans, they are the descendants of the people who were left in the land during the time of the Assyrian captivity. Israelite descendants. And the Samaritans also are those colonies of Gentiles that were planted in the land by the king of Assyria. So a Samaritan could have been a person of these five different colonies without being an Israelite at all. Amen. Does that make sense? So in Jesus' day, you have the descendants of the Israelites that were not departed, deported into Assyria. 
the descendants of those people in the land. They're Samaritans. They're Israelite. And then in Jesus' day, you have the descendants of these five colonies of Gentiles that are also known as Samaritans. And it is possible that we have an intermarian or whatever racially of the Gentiles and Israelites and them being half Jew and Gentile. But I'm just trying to tell you it does not have to be that way. Okay? They could just simply be the descendants of the Israelites that were not deported in the Assyrian captivity or the descendants of these five Gentile colonies that were placed in Samaria at the time of the deportation. Does that make sense? So now, now you really know who these people are. Say amen. Now, let me keep reading here. Verse uh, 24 again. And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon, from Kufa, from Ava, and from Hamath, and from Sepharvam, and placed them in the cities of Samaria, right? Where were they placed? In the cities. These are not Israelites. Okay. Instead of who? The children of Israel. And they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. So you get the picture? The Assyrian captivity, 721 to 722 B.C. They come down, they capture the Israelites, and the majority of them were taken over into Assyria. The ones that are left behind produce children, and they live all the way up in the days of Jesus, okay? And then you have these Gentiles that were planted by the Assyrians in their place, which is recorded right here, these five colonies. Pretty simple, okay. Verse 25. And so it was at the beginning of their dwelling there that they feared not the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them which slew some of them. So these people of these five colonies didn't fear the Lord. They didn't know who He was. These five colonies brought their own lords with them. They brought their own pagan deities with them. They brought their own husbands with them. Five of them. Okay? You got five colonies, and each one of those colonies brought their own bell. The English word husband is, is a translation from the Hebrew word bell. So these five colonies brought their, each one brought their own husband or their own bell with them into Samaria. So you had five colonies with five husbands or five lords or five bells. Okay, so the Samaritans at the beginning were idol worshippers. Each one of them had their own husband or their own lord or their own bell. It was a pagan deity. Does that make sense? They came into the land. They did not know the one God of the Bible. And so God sent lions into their midst. Let's read it. Verse 25, And so it was at the beginning of the dwelling there that they feared not the Lord, therefore the Lord sent lions among them which slew some of them. Right? Because of their idolatry, because of their paganism, because of their worship of other Baals or other husbands or other lords. Now they're in the land of Yahweh. <laughs> they're in the land of the Lord. For them to keep worshiping these idols is going to bring the judgment of God on them. Just like God judged the land of Israel for their idolatry, 
He's now sending lions among these idol worshipers. And so the king of Assyria says, all right, what we have to do here is we got to send a priest, an Israelite priest from Assyria back into Samaria so he can teach them about this one God. Now you do realize there's not many lords. There's only one God. So these, these five husbands or five lords are, are not gods at all. They're demonic spirits. They're idols. You understand that? So these people were worshiping devils. And so the Lord sends lions and the, the lions devour some of them. And so the Assyrian king said, we got to do something about this. we got to send a priest that knows about this one God down into Samaria here and teach them about this one God. So the scripture tells us, verse 26, Wherefore they spake to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations which thou hast removed and placed in the cities of Samaria know not the manner of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them, and behold, they slay them, because they know not the manner of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Carry thither one of the priests whom you brought from thence, and let them go and dwell there, and let them teach them the manner of the God of the land. Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Albeit every nation made gods of their own, put them in the houses of the high places, which the Samaritans had made every nation in their cities wherein they dwelt. You understand? So many of them just continued their pagan worship, but they were taught about the one God of the Bible by the priest. Does that make sense to you? Okay. Very interesting, isn't it? So what these people knew about the one God of the Bible is that He is a God of judgment. That's what they knew about Him. But their worship of Him was never a pure worship. Although they did arrive to a point of monotheism, which they did believe in this one God, to a point. But their worship was not a pure worship of the one God of the Bible. They still had some mixture with them. Does that make sense? Okay. So now, I'm giving you background here. Next thing you need to know is that these Samaritans, not only did they begin to know about the one God of the Bible in contrast to their five lords that they carried into the land, five husbands or five bells, they adopted or believed that the first five books of the Bible, which is called the Law of Moses, they took that and they started teaching that and believing in that themselves. But they did not believe in the writings of the prophets. They didn't read, they didn't believe the Psalms or the prophets were from the Lord, etc. But they did believe in the first, how many? Five. I want you to catch this number. Five husbands, five lords, five colonies, five books of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible. They believed in those first five books in the Bible. Okay. They were monotheistic to a point. They believed in the one God of the Scripture. They believed that He was the God of vengeance. They believed that this God was going to come in the form of a man and be a prophet. Say a prophet. A man who would reveal God. Now, did I say they believed God was going to come in flesh? No, they didn't believe that. 
But they believed there would be a Messiah, and this Messiah, when he came, that he would be a revealer of God to man. So they were looking for a Messiah. But they were not looking for a son of David, a king. Nor were they looking for him to be God come in the flesh. So they give you a little background of these people. Okay, say amen. All right, y'all ready? So now you know biblically who they are. And now not only that, but they built a temple in Mount Gerizim. Uh, this temple was built in the days of Alexander the Great, 332 B.C. Okay? Now you don't know how long it took me to, to discover that. The time frame of it, alright? But Josephus, how many of y'all heard of Josephus? If you haven't, you haven't been listening to me because I, I always mention Josephus. Josephus, first, second, first or second Jewish historian, makes reference in his writings that the temple in of the Samaritans in Mount Gerizim was built during the time of Alexander the Great. Okay? So let me give you some history. At the beginning of the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great, 332 B.C., gave his consent for Sanballat. Sanballat. Not the Sanballat of the days of Nehemiah. That's mid-5th century. Sanballat the Horonite, Horonite the one who gave Nehemiah such a hard time was Sanballat number one. Okay, 445 B.C. But you got to jump in history and his ancestor, Sanballat III, gets permission from Alexander the Great to build the temple in Mount Gerizim. Okay, you all with me? Let me see if I can find Mount Gerizim for you. Uh, Samaria. Oh. Well, okay. Good. Let me look at my paper here. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, Samaria, Sidecar, Shikram. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Can I point to? Where are you, man? Get back over there. Right there. Mount Garrison, where's evil? No, Garrison, but I'm looking for evil. It's in the north. Huh? Garrison? No, no, not, not that far over. I don't see evil on the map here. Do you see it on there? That's... No, it shouldn't be that far up. That's Tabor. No, that's Gilboa. Okay, anyway, I'll just tell you. Mount Gerizim. I don't see uh, evil on here. Okay, all right. If you go back to Deuteronomy 27, let's just look at it. Because I've got to give you this understanding. Okay, Leviticus, Deuteronomy 27. All right, let's uh, start with verse 1, Deuteronomy 27, 1. And Moses with the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you this day, 
It shall be on the day when you shall pass over Jordan into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, that thou shalt set thee up great stones and plaster them with plaster. And thou shalt write upon them all the words of this law. When thou art passed over, okay, you with me? That thou mayest go into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, a land that floweth with milk and honey, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee. Therefore it shall be when ye be gone over Jordan, that, that they're coming to the promised land, that you shall set up these stones which I command you this day in Mount where? Ebal, and thou shalt plaster them with plaster. And there shalt thou build an altar unto the Lord thy God, an altar of stones. Thou shalt not lift up an iron tool upon them. Thou shalt build the ark of the Lord thy God of whole stones. Thou shalt offer burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord thy God. And thou shalt offer peace offerings and shalt eat thereof and rejoice before the Lord thy God. Right? Thou shalt write upon the stones all the words of the law plainly. Okay? Jump to verse 11. Moses charged the people the same day, saying, These shall stand upon Mount Gerizim to bless the people when you are come over Jordan, Simeon and Levi and Judah and Iscar and Joseph and Benjamin, and these shall stand upon Mount Ebal to curse. So you have what? Look at verse 12. These shall stand upon Mount Gerizim and Ebal. So on Mount Ebal, they stood on Mount Ebal, and that's the Mount of Cursing. So Moses commanded them when they went into the promised land that they were to stand on Mount Ebal and they were to pronounce the curses that would come upon the people if they did not keep the covenant of God. That was Mount Ebal. On Mount Gerizim, Mount Gerizim was the Mount of Blessing. And on the Mount of Blessing, Mount Gerizim, they stood and pronounced the blessings of the covenant upon the people if they kept the covenant. And those are recorded beyond Deuteronomy 27, Uri 28, etc. You'll see the blessing and the cursing. So what you had here, come here, brother, please stand there. We'll, we'll let Brother Patrick represent Mount Ebal, the Mount of Cursing. And he likes to do that kind of thing. I'm not saying cuss, I said curse. There's a big difference. But anyway, he'd start, turn out there and start preaching to him, brother. Yeah, tell them tell the curses that are going to come on them if they don't obey the covenant. Yeah, that's a good start. Good, good job. Good job. Praise the Lord. Keep going, man. I like that. Oh, okay. All right. Well, praise the Lord. And, and so anyway, the other group sent over Mount Garrison, right? And they're pronouncing the blessings on the people when they keep the covenant of the Lord. Say Mount Gerizim. Okay? In there, in between Mount Ebal and Gerizim, there's a huge valley there. And in that valley was a well called Jacob's Well. Okay? And that's where you're going to find this event tonight. Right in between those two mountains here. Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, the well of Jacob. Thank you, brother. But what you need to understand is that there was a temple that was built on the Mount of Blessing, which was located in Samaria. And so this temple was a rival temple to the temple in Jerusalem. So that the Samaritans did not go to Jerusalem to worship God at the temple in Jerusalem. They set up their own priesthood. They set up their own sacrifices. And they refused to go down and worship at the temple in Jerusalem. 
And that's what caused the rift, the separation, the division, because the Samaritans, descendants of the Israelites that were not deported, deported, or the descendants of those five colonies that were planted there by Assyria, they set up a rival temple in their land and would not go worship the Lord in Jerusalem at that temple. So in Jerusalem you had the priesthood and you had the sacrifices being offered there, but over there in Samaria they worshipped this one God, Yahweh, not correctly, not totally correct, but they had their own temple with their own sacrifices, with their own priesthood. They believed in the first five books of the Bible. They believed that God was a God of vengeance. They were looking for a Messiah to come that would bring a revelation of God to them. Okay? And so there was a rift between Jerusalem and the Samaritans because of that rival temple. All right. Say praise the Lord. Now you got it, don't you? I sure appreciate Brother back there pointing these places out for us. Okay, let's go back to John 4. <clears throat> now, having told you that, This culture of the Samaritans were looked at by the Jews when they looked at women of Samaria. They said the women of Samaria were polluted from the day of their birth. They were impure from the day of their birth. From the cradle to the grave, they were impure. Okay? They taught that from the cradle to the grave, the little girls already started, if you will, if you understand, I'm not going to get, I don't want to get too detailed here, but they had already started where normally it would not happen until puberty. Does that make sense to you? So because of that issue, then they said, they said, this is not true, but they said that Samaritan women from the cradle to the grave were polluted. They were impure. Okay? That makes sense? They, they hated the Samaritans, but they despised Samaritan women with a passion and said they are the most polluted women in the world. Okay? And it was against the law in Samaria for a lone man to speak to a woman that was alone in public. Also, the Jews taught that it was not good for a man to speak to a woman in public. That it wasn't even good for him to speak to his own wife in public. Much less somebody else's wife in public. But Jesus is going to break all these rules. See, okay. Tremendous prejudice. Huge prejudice and hatred. Okay, rules govern men and women talking with each other. Now listen to me. Some of you tonight are going to get your eyes open. Because some of you are full of prejudice. If some of you, you put the woman down here, you won't say that. You won't say that. But in your mind, you're the man. And she's the woman.
sees less than me. Ooh, it gets quiet in here. If the man is the great power of God, what I'm saying is that he has the power. And the woman, you know, she's nothing. But you're going to find out that Jesus liberated women. Now, in a true sense, not the women's liberation, but he set women free. And Christianity liberated women out from underneath that kind of concept. Now, if I have time tonight, I'm going to teach you things you have never heard. And, and when you leave here, some of you are going to really wonder if pastor's lost his mind. But I'm going to try to get into the Word of God. I'm going to try to explain some things to you. Okay, now, you might say, well, I believe the woman is equal to the man. You might say that, but how do you look at her? So you're going to learn some neat things tonight. Now, I pray I can finish teaching it. You don't stone me to death. Or walk out, get all mad at me. Because Jesus is going to do something with this woman that is unheard of in his culture. Number one, he's going to go into a place that's against the law for a Jewish rabbi to go into to die for it. Number two, it is against the, the rules of Samaria and Jewish rules for a man to speak to a woman alone in public. Number three, Jews, Romans, Greeks, no culture in that day taught a woman in public. They were never to be taught in public. In fact, the Jews said to teach a woman or to give the law of God to a woman is to give her sin. Which means, that doesn't mean the Bible's sin, but if you turn the, the five books of the Bible over to a woman and you taught her that, you have made her a sinner. They taught it was better for the law to be burned in a fire than to give it to a woman. That's quite a year now. Amen. So let's go here. Let's, let's take a seat. So we find out. I don't know. Is there anything I should teach this man? I'm really. I might just need to go home. Jesus makes his way over to Samaria. When he gets there, he walks into one of those mountain cities at Sychar. Now, Sychar in 800 BC was known as the place of drunkards and reprobates. This is where they put drunkards and reprobates. Sychar. And uh, back in that day, Sychar literally, literally meant drunkard or good for nothing. Okay? So that's some background here. And this is the place that Jesus is going to walk into. He's been rejected by his brethren, the Jews. I'm not talking about the nation as a whole, but the religious leaders. And that's why he left. Correct? So now he's going to turn to the Samaritans. 
he must needs go through Samaria, about 30 miles north of Jerusalem, on his way up to Galilee. And when he gets here, this rival religious system of the Samaritans is going on, in contrast to the Jewish temple over there that's going on, you know, and all that worship there. And so, let's continue here. Verse 5, Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. So Jacob gave his son Joseph this parcel of ground. And it is believed that the well that is spoken of here traditionally is where they put Joseph, his brothers put Joseph in before Joseph was taken into Egypt. Jacob's well. Okay? So Jacob gave this well to his what? This parcel of land, I should say, to, the Bible says, Joseph. It's connected, it's located near Shechem. Now, Shechem is one of those mountain cities in Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. <clears throat> okay, and this is over there, it's at the foot of this mountain we're talking about. Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebal, I'm not sure, I don't remember exactly which one is either at the foot of Mount Ebal or the foot of Mount Gerizim. The temple was in Mount Gerizim, but this parcel of land, I don't remember, I think it's at the foot of, of Mount Ebal. Okay, so you know the general area here. The Bible says, now Jacob's well was there. This well is about a hundred foot deep. It's a very deep well. Holds a lot of water. Now, what is interesting, Jesus is going to use the term for springing water. It's a water that is springing up. It's living water. It's a flowing water. It's not just a place that holds stagnant water. But it is living water. It's jumping up water. It's springing up water. It's living water. Now, there's a lot of tradition with this, but you remember that when uh, Jacob, he rolled this big old heavy stone, the book of Genesis, off of a well so that the sheep could drink. Y'all remember that. If you read your Bible, you know it's there. And it's believed when Jacob moved that big old heavy stone out of the way so the sheep could drink, that the well started overflowing and it just kept running and it ran over for 20 years. Now, that's not in your Bible. That's just, that's tradition or history. It just kept flowing. And it's believed that that has something to do with it. So, anyway, I don't know if it's that well that he moved the rock off of or it's the place where Joseph was cast in. I'm not sure which one it is, but... The Bible tells us that there is a well, Jacob's well, there's about 100 foot deep. Uh, as far as I know, it's still in existence today. So Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied, say wearied with his journey, set thus on the well. I mean, he's traveled, I don't know, it's 30 miles from Jerusalem up to Samaria. So, you know, it's a pretty good ways. He's traveled already. So he started early in the morning. He comes at 6 o'clock in the, the day, the sixth hour of the day, which is 12 o'clock. It's lunchtime. He's been walking a long ways, a long time, and he's very tired. God doesn't get tired, but in his humanity. He is God come in the flesh, but in his humanity, he's very tired. He's very weary. Okay. Ooh, have you ever been there? You're just tired. People look at you and think you're discouraged. You're not discouraged. You're just exhausted. You know, Jesus in his humanity, although he be in God, he is God in his humanity. He's very, very tired. He's very weary. He's very thirsty. He's been walking for a long time. Or, you know, I'm assuming he walked and he wasn't riding a horse. 
Rabbis don't ride horses. He rode something. He rode a donkey. But anyway, he's very tired. He gets to this well, Jacob's well. And the Bible says he sets down there at that well. It's about the sixth hour of the day. Now, what is interesting, normally women go early morning to the well to collect water or late evening to collect water. But this woman he's going to meet is going to go in the hot part of the day, which is not normal. The first thing I got to tell you, the Bible doesn't tell us that she's the only woman that is there that day. Nor does the Bible tell us that she went at the hot part of the day because she was a harlot. The Bible does not say in any of this passage that she's a harlot. Uh-oh. It'll say she's been married five times. The one she's living with is not her own. But that doesn't mean that she's living with a man in adultery. It could mean that she's living with a male relative. And you can't read and I can't read into the text that she is a harlot or an adulteress. The Bible doesn't say she was. Okay? So she goes during the hot part of the day. Now, I will give you this that it is possible she's a little bit embarrassed about her lifestyle. Having been married five times and what she's living with is not her own. Maybe she is in adultery. But the Bible doesn't say clearly she is. And, and it doesn't say that she's the only woman there. But it's very unusual for a woman to go at six, the sixth hour of the day or 12 o'clock in the hot part of the day. It's very unusual. Wow. So Jesus makes his way. He must needs go through Samaria. Why? Because he's going to meet a woman there that he as God, he as the word of God, before there ever was a creation, knew that he would come in the form of a man and then on that very day, at that very time, at that very moment, the sixth hour of the day, he being God in eternity past, saw this very day, this very moment, this very time, and this very woman of Samaria coming to that well, and he must need go to Samaria to win this woman to himself. Jesus, the soul winner. He must needs go through Samaria because before there ever was a creation, he already set this time up. He knew she would be there at that hour. And so he goes and he sits down on that well of Jacob and he's very, very tired. He's very, very weird. He's very, very thirsty. And here comes this woman. The Bible says, verse 6, Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus therefore being weird with his journey sat thus on the well and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria. Say a woman of Samaria. Example number two. Nicodemus is example number one of what is in the heart of man. Now we come not to a man, but to a woman. And this woman is unnamed. Nicodemus was named. He was a man, and he was a man of position and of authority. He was a Jew. He was of the Sanhedrin court. He was the teacher of Israel, the theologian. But this is a woman who is not named. And she is a Samaritan. Her religion is Samaritan religion. And she is not a woman of position. She's a woman of low means. She's serving, going to get water. So she is a picture of what is in the heart of mankind. You understand? 
She shows up. The Bible says there comes a woman of Samaria. Oh, wow. To draw water. Now, Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. Wow, isn't this interesting? That a Jewish man sitting there on this well in Samaria, he's not supposed to be there, number one. Number two, he's not supposed to talk to a woman in public alone. Number Okay. And then number three, if this woman is, as they say she is, a polluted woman, by virtue of the fact that from her birth, they said, in their hatred and their prejudice, that she, you know, had her issue from even birth. It is not lawful for you to even touch her jar. Because if you touch her jar, you become unclean. If she was a continual issuing woman. And you cannot sit where she sits. And you can't even let her rub against you. If you do, you become ceremonially unclean. And here he looks at this woman of Samaria and he tells her, what? Ask her. Give me to drink. Jesus, are you so desperate that you would ask a woman with a jar in her hand to, to get you some water? That's the, that's the picture here. He's so needy that he would go to the extreme of even talking to a woman in public to get a drink of water. No, he's doing this to start up a conversation. Not so he can get water for himself, but so he can teach her about living water. And when he starts talking to this woman of Samaria, he completely shocks her. Because surely she looked at him and saw the talit that he was wearing. She knew he was a Jewish man and not just a Jewish man. She knew he was a Jewish rabbi. And that's against the law in Jerusalem. But he's not under Jerusalem jurisdiction. He's a Galilean. But she can look at him and tell by looking at him that he's a Jew. And she can tell by his dialect, his voice, his language, his dress, his look, that he is a Jew. And she knows all the prejudices. She knows what the rules are in her, her area. She knows what the rules are for the Jews. And all of a sudden, this man begins to talk to her. And says, give me to drink. Now, this is the front stage. The backstage now comes on in verse 8. The Bible tells us his disciples, where did they go? They were gone away unto the city to buy meat. They, they, they decided, we're hungry. It's been a long day. It's six hours a day. It's 12 o'clock. It's time for us to eat lunch. So they go over to McDonald's in Samaria and they order a bunch of hamburgers and french fries and milkshakes and they sit down and and they eat their milkshakes, hamburgers, and french fries. That's the backstage. They're out of the picture. They're not even there when Jesus is talking to this woman at the beginning. Verse 9, Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria, 
for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. How is it that you, you're a Jew, number one, and the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans, and here you are talking to a Samaritan, but not just a Samaritan, but a woman. Prejudice, prejudice, prejudice. Hatred, enemies of the Jews. But yet Jesus is talking to her. And he's breaking the rules of Samaria. And he's breaking the rules of Jerusalem. That a man should not talk to a woman in public. And some of you still think that. Why are you so quiet? Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou being a Jew? Ask a drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria. For the Jews have no dealing with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God. <clears throat> He's letting her know you're looking at the gift of God. Oh, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. So if thou knewest the gift of God, what God wants to do to you right now, he wants to give you living water. Okay? See, she's caught up in buckets and ropes and wells and deep depths the depth of the well, how deep the well is, you know, and this is Jacob's well, and you don't have a bucket to draw water with, and you know, all this stuff. She's just occupied with ropes and buckets and wells, and how deep the well is, that's always on her mind, is physical water and physical well and physical drinking. You say, give me to drink. That's all she can think about is, you want some physical water, and Jesus said, no, what I'm really trying to do here is I'm trying to give you water. I'm trying to give you living water. I'm trying to give you the gift of God. The gift of God is Jesus Christ. The gift of God is the Holy Ghost. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So he's telling her, I want, now ultimately he is the gift of God. He is the one who's going to fill her with the Holy Ghost. And the water he's talking about is the Holy Ghost. But it's not, listen, it's not just the Holy Ghost. Because remember water in John 3, the Bible showed us the water there is water baptism. So what he's going to offer her is water baptism and the Holy Ghost baptism. Say praise the Lord. The, lo the water that will quench her thirst. Ooh. So if you would have asked him, he would have given thee living water. He said, you ask me, I'll give you living water. He said, I'll give you water that will jump up. He said, I'll give you living water, eternal life. Water that will satisfy your thirsty. Jesus and a thirsty woman. This woman is coming in the heart part of the day. Are y'all with me right now? She's got a, a jar to get physical water with. 
but she can drink that physical water and never quench the thirst that's on the inside of her. This woman, and I'll prove it to you by the Word of God, this woman is thirsty. She's thirsty on the inside. She's been married five times. She's tried to please five husbands. And I don't know if they divorced her or they died. I don't know the circumstances of those five husbands. But for some reason, this woman was married five times. She was trying to find satisfaction in that physical, natural relationship. And either, women don't divorce men in that culture. So either those five divorced her or they died. And the one she was living with was not her own. So this woman is very thirsty. She's tried to fill that emptiness on the inside of her with one relationship after another, one marriage after another marriage after another marriage. She's very disappointed. She is dissatisfied. She is disillusioned. She's looking for something in life. And Jesus knows that she's looking for something in life. That's why she's jumped from one to another, to another, to another. She's been trying to please uh, five men. Now she's got another one she's trying to please. She can't please any of them. Maybe she's the problem. I don't know. But anyway, are y'all here with me tonight? But uh, the one she's living with is not her own. That's number six. But the seventh is looking at her. Now, now listen to what I'm telling you. In John chapter 2, right there with the marriage, the marriage feast of Cana, we see in that chapter, it's teaching you Jesus is the true bridegroom. So now we see the Samaritan woman. She's a picture of the bride. Those that are going to be connected to the true bridegroom. This woman is a picture of Isha. She's a picture of the church. She's a picture of women that will be connected to the true bridegroom, Jesus Christ. He's going to win her to himself. And she'll be satisfied by this bridegroom. Unlike the other five and the one she's living with, the sixth. But it'll be the seventh one that will satisfy her. She's a thirsty woman. And only Jesus can satisfy the thirst inside of her. I will tell you again. She is disillusioned. She's disappointed. Are y'all here today? She's dissatisfied. She's tried to find it everywhere. And Jesus said, now, he said, if you had known the gift of God, he said, I would give you living water. He said, really, you're the one that's thirsty, not me. You need Jesus. You need salvation. You need the Holy Ghost. That's what you're looking for. And that will quench your thirsty soul. Give the Lord some praise in the house. <clears throat> She's very thirsty. Now we'll tell you this today. That you can drink natural water and quench your thirst for a short period of time. But the water that Jesus wants to give this woman and wants to give you is a water that you'll never thirst again. It is a jumping up water. It's a springing water. It's a life. It's life. It's eternal life. It will come to you. And we're not being gender specific here. You as a man can be a part of the bride of Christ. You as a man can be, a, be in this picture here of this woman. You can come in here today disappointed, dissatisfied, discontent in the inside of you. And you're looking for a little water here to quench your thirst. A little satisfaction here to quench your thirst. But you will not be satisfied until you get this Jesus.
in your life till he becomes your husband. Because before until he becomes your bridegroom, you'll never be satisfied. You'll jump from one adventure to another. You'll jump from one well to another. And you will never satisfy that thirsty place on the inside of you. Don't let the devil mix you up and thinking if you could just get rid of that one, the next one would be better. No, you'd be disappointed with the next one that you got. Jesus is the true bridegroom. Oh, hallelujah to the Lamb. It's interesting to me how singles can't wait to get married. But then after they get married, they can't wait to get out of it. So don't be deceived into thinking that natural physical marriage is going to do it for you. Whether you be a man or a woman, it's not going to take care of it. You need a relationship with Jesus Christ. You need living water. You need something that's going to jump up on the inside of you. Praise the Lord. Woo. So now, verse 11. The woman, say the woman. In the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, woman would come from the Hebrew word Isha. This is the bride of Adam. And so now the last Adam is coming into the world. And he's talking to this Ishai. He wants to make her his spiritual woman. He wants to make her a part of the bride of the church. Come on, give God some praise in this house. So we have this term woman used in the text to let you know we're dealing with Ishai. The last Adam is here. He's looking for a bride. And this Samaritan woman is a picture of the bride that he's going to be married to. Jesus will have his Isha. He will have his lady. Spiritually speaking, give the Lord praise in the house. And so he wants to give her this spiritual water that will satisfy her. It will jump up on the inside of her. Amen? Give the Lord some worship in the house. Now, now, notice, uh, she, she, she recognized that he was a Jew. But now when he starts talking about this living water and the gift of God that he wants to give to her, now she can relate to that because she's very thirsty on the inside. Amen. And so the Bible said, the woman saith unto him, Sir. So we have a progressive revelation from this woman. This woman is going to begin to progress, uh, progressively begin to get revelation about who this Jew is that's talking to him, to her. See, when she first starts talking to him, oh, she can see he's just a Jewish man talking to her. But when he starts talking about this living water, come on, somebody. You need to understand that culture. The Samaritans were looking for a Messiah that would bring living water. What do you mean, Pastor? They were looking for a Messiah that would bring a revelation of God to them. Some, someone that would come and teach them the Word of God and to them the Word of God was like a river of water leaping up in the inside of them. So they were looking for a Messiah to come and reveal God to them to teach them the Word of God. You need to hear this. So when Jesus said, if you knew who it is that's talking to you right now, He said, I'll give you the gift of God. He said, I want to give you living water. That you, this Samaritan woman knew exactly what he was talking about. He wasn't talking about physical water. He's talking about a revelation of God. He's talking about a Messiah that would come and reveal God to man. So now he's got her attention. So she says to him, no longer is he just a Jew to her, but he says, sir, 
She says, sir. Say, sir. All right. Her respect is increasing for this man. Now the Bible says, the woman said unto him, sir, thou hast nothing to draw with. And the well is deep, from whence then hast thou that living water? Where are you going to get this living water you're talking about? This well is deep. Now I can tell you by study it's a hundred foot deep. So you've got to have a rope and you've got to have a bucket to, to drop down in that water to pull it back up. And so what she thinks is, she goes back to the natural. She thinks he's talking about this physical water here. But you don't have a bucket, Jesus. Where's your rope? Where's your bucket? Uh, how are you going to get that water up here? You know what I'm saying. Give the Lord some praise in the house. So, uh, she uses the term, sir. She uses a respectful term. You know, maybe she's a little bit sarcastic. I'm not sure. I don't want to read it in text. But maybe she's like, where are you going to get this living water you're talking about? Yeah, sure. You know, maybe that's the way she is. All right, I don't know. But I can tell you she was never disrespectful. Woo, did you hear that? She was never disrespectful. Nor did she ever get offended. Not one time. Not one time. Give the Lord praise in the house. She stays respectful. She stays teachable. This is unheard of. For a man to talk to a woman. But now we got a man that's a rabbi teaching this woman about living water and the gift of God. This doesn't happen in that culture, which lets you know that a woman has the ability to grapple with theological teaching. She has the ability to be taught the Word of God. I know you thought the Word of God ended with you, but that's where you're wrong. There's some women that have greater capability to grapple with the Word of God than you do, sir. I hate to tell you that. So now in this passage, we see something that's unheard of. It doesn't happen for a man to teach a woman in public. Talk to her unheard of. To teach her, that is totally unheard of. So now, he's teaching her about living water. He's teaching her about the gift of God. And she's starting to grasp it. But right now, she's still thinking on the natural, physical level of water. You with me so far? But this woman, in the eyes of Jesus, is a teachable person. She can be taught the Word of God. She can understand religion and Jews in Jerusalem and the temple there and the temple in Mount Gerizim and, and the way they worship and the way the Jews worship. She has these understandings about the religion in her day. She, she can be talked to about heavy theological terms and understand what Jesus is saying. This is unheard of. Say praise the Lord. Watch this. So she says, okay, art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us of this well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Are you greater than Jacob himself? Uh, I, I'll tell you the answer to that. Yes, he's Jacob's God. He's the God that gave Jacob the land. He's the God that gave Jacob the well. He is the God of Jacob. Jesus is God manifested in the flesh. And he's greater, she said, than our father Jacob. So what you need to understand is that sometimes the Samaritan connected themselves to Israelite. 
They said, all right, we're of the tribe of Manasseh and Ephraim. And sometimes they denied it. They said, we are of Sidonian descent. But here she says, she says, Jacob was our father. So now she connects herself back to the northern kingdom. That Are y'all with me? In the days of Assyria. Now watch. Oh, this is beautiful, isn't it? He's greater than Jacob. Woo, hallelujah. I feel good all over. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. You can drink this natural water, but you'll thirst again. I'll tell you right now, you can go out there in this world and you can take of the cisterns of this world. You can drink the water of this world and you will continually get thirsty over and over again because this world does not have the capacity to satisfy you. You will become disillusioned. You'll become dissatisfied. You'll become discontent. You'll become frustrated because you thought you could find it out there. No, you need the Holy Ghost. You need the living water. You need the revelation of God. You need Jesus. Or you'll never be satisfied. You'll just keep going after something else. You'll go get another drug. You'll go get another, you'll get a little, you'll get a beer. You'll get something else, something else. And you'll never get satisfied. Are y'all here with me right now? Jesus, the soul winner, is reaching out to this woman. Now watch this. Whosoever drinketh of this water, of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. Say, never thirst. But the water I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. I'm gonna, now listen to me. I'm not reading in the text. Contextually, water is baptism. This baptismal water that uh, will take place. Remember in Acts chapter 8, the revival in Samaria? Water baptized in Jesus' name. This is the roots of that revival in Acts the 8th chapter. When the Samaritans are water baptized in Jesus' name and get the Holy Ghost. This is the roots of it. So the water he's talking about is spiritual water. It's everlasting life, but it's also connected to water baptism. Theologians that don't necessarily hold your viewpoint doctrinally will tell you that. So that's not something new that's coming from me. Give the Lord some praise in the house. Oh, hallelujah to the Lamb. He said, I'm going to give you this water that jumps up on the inside of you. It's eternal life. You'll never thirst again if you drink of this water. Verse 15, the woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. She's so thirsty. She's saying, I need you to give me that water. You don't know how thirsty I am. You don't know how dry I am. You don't know how empty I am right now. I want you to know this woman is as thirsty as you could possibly be. She's tried one thing after another to quench her thirst, but to no avail. So she's saying, give me this water. Is there anybody here today like that? The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. Did you catch that? So now Jesus is going to get in the middle of her family matters. Say family matters. But her family matters are not going to matter. Because God's going to take her beyond her family matters into another world. 
He's going to teach her how by worship you can move into another world and come in contact with God. By worship you can travel beyond matter. So this is not going to matter to you much longer. You're dealing with things of matter. Buckets, ropes, physical water, wells. How deep they are. You're dealing with matter. And Jesus said, I've got to deal with something right now that matters to you in the natural realm. But when I get you beyond that, you're going to find out that that really don't matter. What matters is your relationship with God. So, all right. So now, Jesus is going to start, if you will, sanctified meddling. Before I can give you this living water, we need to deal with some issues in your life. We need to deal with some family matters uh, that you are connected with historically in your history and also the one you're living with right now. We need to talk about that right now before you can get this living water. You need to straighten out some things. And so now, all right, now I want you to see something here. Go call thy husband and come hither. Jesus knew she didn't have a husband. She knew he wasn't, she wasn't married at the time. He knew that she was living with somebody that was not her own. He knew that. How did he know that? Because he's God. How did he know what was going on in her home? Because he was God. Hallelujah to the Lamb. And I want you to see this in the passage. When he brings it up, even though she's got this uh, uh, sordid history of being married five times, the one she's living with is not her own. I want you to see she not, never, never, never does she ever get offended. Never does she get offended. She doesn't say, Jesus, that's none of your business. She does not get offended. She keeps a right spirit. She keeps a teachable spirit. Give the Lord praise in the house. And now, so verse 17, she says, The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said. How'd you know that, Jesus? Because he's God. I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and who, who, he whom thou hast is not thy husband, in thou saidest thou truly, in that thou saidest truly. So, now look at this. Literally, this woman had been married five times. I don't know what happened to the previous five. If they died or they divorced her. But she's got five marriages. Okay, say amen. amen. And the one she's living with is not her own. Uh, uh, maybe she's going steady with somebody right now. But, uh, she's living with somebody. So maybe it is a, a, a wrong a moral situation. Or maybe she's just living with a male relative at the time. Are y'all here with me right now? So literal interpretation is she was married five times, literally five times. The one she's living with right now, the sixth one, is not her own. Say amen. amen. Does that have does that ring a bell to you? I don't have to, I can't show you because this is on here. There's pretty charts on here. But you talk about uh, five are fallen, one is, and one is yet to come. You know, in the book of Revelation, five are fallen. Oh, yeah, okay. So anyway, one is the Roman Empire, and one is yet to come. It'll continue for a short space. Etc. Anyway, that you see that harlot riding on the back of that scarlet colored beast? So she, she could be a cop of that harlot riding on the back of a scarlet colored beast. Okay, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't need to do that. Though. I don't need to go there tonight. Okay, praise the Lord. Are y'all here tonight? But let me talk to you. She, by way of literal interpretation, she was married five times and once she lived with is not her own, correct? So the one that's talking to her would be number seven. Jesus. 
Now, it's interesting that the word husband in the Hebrew is a translation from the word male or Lord. And so those five colonies that were placed into the land of Israel by the Assyrians brought their five husbands, five lords. So she's a picture of Samaria, been married five times to five different males. And the one you're living with right now, Samaria, is not your own. You claim Yahweh to be your God, but Yahweh is not your own because you're not worshiping Him with a pure worship. You're missing you want to claim Yahweh. You want to claim God to be the one that is yours. But the one you're living with right now is not your own. So five colonies, five husbands, five bells, they brought with them. But then with time, they claimed the Yahweh of the Bible, the one God of the Bible, to be their own. But they never got to a place where they were worshiping Him properly. Give the Lord some praise in the house. So Jesus is going to show her, I am Yahweh. I'm going to show you how to come into a relationship with God. And it's not going to be based on a physical structure, a temple in Mount Gerizim, nor is it going to be based on a temple in Jerusalem. It will have nothing to do with physical temples at all. Because standing before you, John chapter 2, He is the temple where God dwells. Jesus standing right there is where God is dwelling. So she, all right, she's, he's fixing to take her somewhere now. So do you understand what I just told you? All right, you've been married five times. The one that you live with is not your own. Five could also be that first five books of the Bible they were married to. Are y'all with me right now? But they did not have a pure worship. That symbolism. So I'm taking you beyond the literal interpretation and the symbolism. Give the Lord some praise in the house. Woo, hallelujah, hallelujah. Now, that might not mean anything to you, but it would mean something to her. Now, watch. Verse 17, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. He brought her to a place of confessing her life situation. Before he could bring her into a place of being joined to him, he had to bring her to a place where she recognized her need for him. Come on, somebody. She had to recognize, although the Bible doesn't call her an adulteress, the Bible doesn't say she was a harlot. Come on, somebody. The Bible doesn't even say those five men she was married to were still alive. The Bible doesn't even say the one she's living with was an adulterous relationship. So don't read into the text. But what he has to do is he has to bring her to a place of confessing some issues in her life. So evidently there were some issues with her marriage relationships. And the one she's living with is not her own. So we've got to deal with this lady. We've got to deal with this woman. If you want to be the bride of Christ, you've got to deal with issues. You've got to deal with, some, deal with sin that's in your life. Now, you know, uh, uh, she might have intended to say, now, sir, that is none of your business. Uh, you, 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 you know, you're, you're taking this too far right now. No, but she never did that. Never did that. Praise the Lord God. Amen. She knew. She knew. But what she does is, after he brings it up, she's going to sidetrack the thing. She's going to change the conversation 
and she's going to start talking religious. Let's don't talk about how many times I've been married. Let's don't talk about the one I'm living with is not my own. Let's don't talk about that. Let's talk about religion here. Uh, let's just completely avoid this conversation here. I won't tell you to uh, that it's none, you know, none of your business. I won't tell you that. But let's avoid this conversation because it makes me feel very uneasy. Let's get religious. Whoa, it's quiet in here. I didn't expect you to be so quiet in here. Praise the Lord. Verse 18, For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, and thou saidest thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. So now we move from her revelation, or her uh, observation that he's a Jew, we move beyond that to her calling him Sir. But now, when he says, you've been married five times and one of the new ones is not your own, you must be a prophet. The only way you could have known that is if you are the prophet, the one we've been looking for, the prophet's going to be in a revelation of God that's going to cause water to flow out of us, a revelation of truth from God. Woo! So now she's got a progressive revelation. Now she's got a prophet on her hands. And that's what they were looking for in Messiah was simply a prophet or that prophet after Moses. That's all they were looking for. You hear what I'm telling you right now. Okay, so amen. They would give them that living water by revelation of the Word of God. Now, let's keep reading here. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. You perceive by your spirit, not your mind. See, a lot of people are caught up in their minds. They think about their human intellect. They operate. That's the way they operate in life is by their human intellect. You cannot perceive spiritual. You cannot latch hold of spiritual truth by the intellect. You have to grab a hold of it by your spirit. Your spirit is where you perceive the things of God. Say amen. Give Lord praise. So she perceived that he was a prophet. Now, here we go. We're going to change the subject. That's too touchy. I don't like us going there. Praise the Lord, church. There was a sister. She's going out to be with the Lord now. She came to a home Bible study that I was teaching. I was teaching in my house, a home Bible study. She came in that house, and the Lord had spoken to me, and she had just started coming to the church. I said, the Lord has spoken to me. You are the woman at the well. She started crying right there in my house. She said, Pastor, she said, I've called myself that all my life. All my adult life, I have said I was the woman at the well. When I told her that, she broke down and started crying. And she knew that God was setting up the connection. Give the Lord praise in the house. And she came in, was baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost. And, and stayed in the church until she passed on to be with her Lord. Hallelujah to the Lamb. She experienced that living water. So we, we need to get off that subject here. So, let's talk about religion. Let's don't talk about my marriages. Let's talk about religion. See, Jesus, when he comes, when he comes to your life, he is going to come confrontational. He's going to confront, he's going to deal with the issues in our lives. And I'm just I'm not just talking about yours, I'm talking about mine. 
You hear what I said? Not just you. I'm not preaching just to you. I'm talking about me. I'm talking about Sister Christina. God will come in and he will deal with the matters of your marriage. So you get ready. Like it or not, here he comes. And we might be embarrassed about the whole thing. But he's got to deal with that in our lives before he can do what he wants to do in us. It's a great obstacle. Got some obstacles that she needs to deal with. So let's change the subject here. Let's talk about religion. Okay? So now this shows me this woman has the ability to be taught deep truths of the scripture. You know, don't don't let anybody in the world uh, let me put it this way. Don't let anybody, women, don't let anybody in the world make you feel like you're a dummy. Okay? That you don't have the ability to understand the word of God. This woman is showing you God's original intent for you was to make you his Ishai. To bring you to a place where he could teach you face to face the great principles of his revelation, his word. It's not just for men, it's for women. Give the Lord praise. Unheard of in that culture. Jesus is going to liberate these women. He, he liberated you. He set you free, women. And I know you might be sitting next to your husband and you don't want to shout too loudly. But I release you. I don't care what he thinks. I release you in the name of Jesus to shout and to praise God. Because God, Jesus, has set you free from the prejudice of men and culture. You are equal to that man you're sitting beside. You are not less than him. You are equal. And I'm not telling you to tell him to shut up, but I'll tell him to shut up. You hear what I'm telling you tonight? Well, you need me. Watch this. The woman at the fall. The Bible says her desire will be to her husband. And he will rule over her. That is not a command. It is not a command of the word of God that the man is to rule over the woman. That's a curse. That's the result of the fall. And Jesus is coming back to restore women to their rightful position of authority and power and revelation. Well, see right here, right here in Genesis 3, it says the man is supposed to rule over the wife. That is not a command, that's a curse. Thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. You know why she's going to start looking to the husband? Because of the fall. Where she should be looking to God. She's looking to him. I didn't mean that. I wasn't talking about you specifically. Look, I can't hardly button that thing. Life's been good. 
See, I got Bible right here. I'm supposed to rule over you. And your desire, come on somebody, shall be to thy husband. Listen to me. She was supposed to be seeking God. Like she, every beck and call, everything in her life, she's got to go to you. She can't go to God. She's got to go to you. And if God tells her something different, uh, she's got to get it okay with you. Not you. That is a curse. That's not God. That's Hispanic culture. Oh. You're the man. You're the chief of the house. Oh, you're fixing to learn some things tonight, honey. Because of the curse, because of the fall, she started looking to her husband instead of looking to God. God said, I'm going to bring you back into a relationship where you can be taught. Come on, somebody. He's not going to cancel that relationship of husband and wife. But he's going to bring her up to the place she's supposed to be. And that's out from underneath the prejudice of mankind. You better get over here and shine my shoes. You better cook my meal just like I want it. She's not your slave. She's your lady. She's your Isha. She's your lady. Hallelujah to the Lamb. There should be an intimacy there. Not a slave relationship. It's supposed to be built on intimacy. Relationship. And I, oh, you don't be there. When I get a hold of the truth, I get real zealous. You don't want me to get a hold of the truth. As I get the truth and I start walking in it, I, boy, I get zealous, man. Jesus is going against all these rules. As a man, he's talking to a woman. He's teaching her the revelation of God. He said, I'm going to fill you with the revelation of God. I'm going to give you eternal life. I'm going to bring you up in a proper fellowship. I'm going to set you free from the bondages and prejudices of your society. Thank God. I mean, America, you know, to a certain extent, we respect women. But do you see them as equal to you? Because biblically, a woman is equal to the man. Not less than. Well, it's quiet in here. Why are you so quiet? Now, some of y'all, I'm loading you up. I'm giving you ammunition. And don't call me on the telephone. You better be wise as a serpent. You don't walk into your house and say, Pastor said. I got it right here. It's my club now, man. Pastor said. Don't you do that. You come to church with black eyes, I don't blame me. Now you can stand on the truth, but be careful how you do it. Anybody awake? So anyway, okay. So, now, let's go talk about Marital relationships here. Let's don't talk about husbands here because I've had my fill of them. <laughs> yeah. They ruled me and ruled over me, all five of them. And I'm living with another one. He's not my own. I, he's even trying to rule over me now. Let's don't talk about them. Jesus is trying to say, I'll be your husband. I'm the bridegroom. Spiritually. Hallelujah. He's your true husband, woman. He's your true husband, man. 
us men are supposed to be an example of the Lord in love to our wives. Say praise the Lord. I got a long ways to go. How about you, men? I got two two amens. Okay. You see what he's saying? See, he's talking about husbands. He's talking about matrimony. He's talking about husband-wife relationships. He's doing that for a reason. Because he's going to be the last Adam, the true bride, going to this one. Amen. Give the Lord some praise in the house. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. And when he gets through talking to her, he's going to give her the power of choice. What? He's going to talk to her, which is against the rules. He's going to teach her, which is unheard of. And then he's going to give her a choice, a power of choice. Without a husband standing beside her telling her what to do. I'm getting you all in trouble. The power of choice. Okay, so let's go on here. Let's talk about something. All right. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. She points to Mount Gerizim. Worshipped in that temple there. 332 B.C. Alexander gave them the the right to build that temple and to set up their own priesthood and, and to bring sacrifices to Yahweh, but it was not a pure worship. They didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know who they were worshiping. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And you say, ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. He said, there's coming a time. He said, you're focusing again on physical things. You're focusing on geography. You're focusing on location. You're focusing on which religion is correct. Is it our religion, the religion of the Samaritans, or is it the religion that's going on in Jerusalem? So her focus is which religion is correct? Which one is the right religion? Some of y'all ask the same question. Which denomination is the right denomination? Which religion is the right? Which is the right way to worship God? That's where she is. Which physical place, which geography do I go to to worship God? Say amen. Okay. Well, we'll come back to that. You want to come back to that? No, let's, let's, let's finish this and we'll come back to the other one. Are you ready? Are you ready? <clears throat> She's saying men. Where should men worship? At this temple or the one in Jerusalem? Watch what Jesus says. Woman Ishai in the Hebrew and the Old Testament. Believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. Literally, ye worship, ye know not who. You're trying to worship Yahweh, but your worship is an impure worship. It's got mixture in it. So you worship, you worship, you know not what, or you don't know who you're worshiping. You get that? You're trying, but you're not quite there. Amen? Say, that's what Jesus said. What if I walked up and said, 
You worship, but you don't know who you worship. You worship, but you don't know what you worship. You don't know what you're doing. Well, well, well. She never gets offended in this whole conversation. Give the Lord praise in the house. Say the hour coming. It's coming. Then you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you know not what or who. We know what or who we worship. For salvation is of the Jews. We know who we worship. Come on. Salvation is of the Jews. God showed the Jews how to worship Him. How to worship Him? By bringing blood sacrifice. To make atonement for their soul. Jesus will become that sacrifice that will make atonement for their souls. He showed them to go to the tabernacle and the temple. But the true temple is there right now. The one in whom God dwells is right there right now. Give the Lord some praise in the house. The revelation of God. The word of God. The logos. God in flesh is right so the Jews know. The Jews know who they worship because the Jews are monotheistic believers. What makes the Jews different from the Samaritans is the Samaritans had a mixture in their monotheism. Did you catch what I'm telling you? But the Jews were strict monotheistic believers. They were one God believers. So when they worshiped God, they worshiped Him as one Lord. They worshiped Him as one God. And for you to worship God today, you must have a revelation that Jesus is God for you to, because only believers can worship. Jews can praise Him. Salvation is of the Jews. Jews can praise Him. The word Jew means praise. Jews can praise Him. Anybody can praise Him. But only believers can worship Him. Because you have to know that He is God. And you have to know He's God come in that body, that temple right there to be a true worshiper. Give the Lord some praise in the house. Did you catch it? Salvation is of the Jews. Why salvation of the Jews? What makes the difference? Because they're one God believers. What makes you different from the churches in this, in this city, many of them, is because you don't have just a part understanding of who God is. You know Jesus is God in bodily form. You believe you are an absolute monotheistic believer. You believe in one God in Christ Jesus. You don't believe in three separate persons. You know who you worship because Jesus to you is God. And to be a true worshiper of Jesus, you must know that He is God. You must be a strict monotheistic believer just like the Jews did. You must know it's not blood sacrifice. You approach this God. Amen. Say amen. Hallelujah. All right. Woo. Verse 23. But the hour cometh and now is. Notice that. 
I want you to catch that. The hour cometh and now is. Right now. He said it's coming, but it's now. See, Jesus didn't know. He was never limited to time. He talked about future things as if they were now. Because in the Spirit, it's always now. In the Holy Ghost, it's always today. In the Holy Ghost, it's never tomorrow. In the Holy Ghost, it's always today. Today, if you will hear His voice, harden not your heart. Today, if you will hear His heart, His voice. So in the Spirit, it's always today in the eternal world. So He said, the hour cometh and now is. What's going to happen? When the true worshipers, say true worshipers, shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. True worshipers shall worship. It's not a request, it's a command. He's commanding true worshipers to worship Him. Not at a geographical location. You don't have to go to the temple in Jerusalem. You don't have to go to Mount Gerizim. You can worship Him anywhere as long as you know He's God and who He is that you're worshiping. What you worship. Who He is that you worship. Spirit and in truth. And it's not just for men. It's for you, woman. You cannot be a true worshiper of God if you're not a monotheistic believer, like the Jews. You cannot be a true worshiper of Jesus Christ if you don't have a revelation that He's God because worship is unto God. And if you're worshiping Jesus, He has to be God. So John's showing you a side of Jesus. The other Gospels are not showing you. And that, that Jesus is God come in the flesh. So don't lie to genealogy because He's God. Come on, you're hearing me right now? Don't talk about his boyhood. Don't talk about when he's left behind and found in the temple. Come on, somebody, because we're not, we're not dealing with that. He is God. He's the eternal word. He's the Logos coming flesh. He's the revelation of God. He's the living waters. He's God coming bodily form. We know who we worship. We don't just praise Him, we worship Him. Can you imagine this? He wasn't saying this to Nicodemus. He wasn't saying it to a man. He's using heavy, heavy theology and He's teaching it to a woman. All the women, now don't shout me down because I'm preaching good. Jesus came to set you free from prejudice and bondages. Listen to me, men. Let me just say this. We as men ought to be praising the Lord as well. Because I really believe, really honestly tonight, I'm preaching to men who want this for your wives. You want them to walk in the highest level of the revelation of God that they can possibly have. You want them to walk in the highest level of worship that they can possibly enter into. So what God is showing you is that you can be move beyond natural physical relationship and move into the Spirit by worship and connect to the Lord, your true husband. 
by the new birth and by worship. I'm coming in the presence of the Lord. I'm connected to my husband right now. It's a high level of praise that's going up. And when you worship, it's a command. It's, an, it's imperative. It is a command. It's not a request. It is a command for you to worship. And when you worship, it will transport you into other worlds. It'll move you beyond matter. It'll move you beyond buckets and ropes and physical bells. Physical wells and physical situations. It'll connect you to the Lord. Worship transports you into another world. He's trying to teach her what will happen if she'll worship. What will happen if you'll worship. And what true worship is a spirit and in truth. There's some people who worship Him. They have the Holy Ghost. But they don't worship Him in truth. Because they don't know who He is. There's some people who know who He is but don't have the Holy Ghost. They're not worshiping in the Spirit. In order for you to worship Jesus as God, you have to be filled with the Spirit. And you have to know who He is. He's the Logos. He's the Word. He is the revelation of God to me. Yeah, Lord. John's showing us another side of Jesus, his deity. <coughs> the woman said unto him, I know that Messiah cometh. So now she's moved from Jew to Sir to prophet to Messiah. She said, I know Messiah's coming. Our, <coughs> our Samaritan belief system knows there's a Messiah that's going to come and give us the revelation of God. It's going to be springing up. The water springing up into everlasting life. And watch, so watch what Jesus does. I know, she said, I know the Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he has come, he will tell us all things. He'll reveal God to us. See, John is showing he's the Logos. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. <coughs> but let me stop. He said, I that speak unto thee am. I'm not just the Christos, the Messiah, that will come and be a prophet and reveal the word of God to you. She said, I, he said, I that speak to thee am. He is Yahweh. He's the one the Samaritans are living with. But they don't know. They don't know how to worship him. He said, you're looking at Am. You're looking at Am. You're looking at the God of the Old Testament. Are you with me right now? You're looking at the one that made Adam and Eve. Made them equal. You're looking at the one that said that Eve, that, okay, that the woman Ishai would be taken out of the sight of man and this woman Ishai will be what? His help meet. This woman will be your help meet. 
Adam and, and the woman Isha are a type of Jesus and the bride, right? Okay. She will be your helpmate. Genesis 2. She's going to be your helpmate. Get ready. Don't swallow your tongue. If you do, we'll have to go get a coat hanger and pull it out. But literally, the word is translated many times, helpmate, is translated power or authority. She shall be equal with you in power and authority. Ooh, did you catch that? She's not subordinate to you. She will not. She'll be your helpmate, but in what sense? She will have power and authority just like you do, Adam. And the fact that she's got power and authority just like you is going to cause that loneliness that's in you to go away. Oh, hallelujah to the Lamb. So no wonder in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I believe it's verse 10, the Bible says a woman ought to have power on her own head. Where did she get that power? From God at the beginning. Oh, hallelujah to the Lamb. Now look at Genesis 3. After the fall. <coughs> Before the fall, she was supposed to be equal in power with the man, a helpmeet to him, and would alleviate the loneliness in him. And so now, this equality uh, of these genders. There's no hierarchy in gender. There is no hierarchy in gender. Hallelujah to the Lamb. She is equal to you, man. She is equal to you. She has a different role, but she still has power. And she still has authority. It is only after the fall of man that we see here... Are y'all awake now? What is it? Is it Genesis? Is it Genesis? Did I say three six? I think I made a mistake on that verse. Citing the sea. Three sixteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, three sixteen. Thank you. Unto the woman, say woman. See, we got this term used, woman, in John four. Unto the woman, he said, "I will greatly multiply thy sorrow." When does this happen? After the fall and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children and thy desire shall be to thy husband. You're going to start looking to him. You're going to start trying to control him. You're going to start looking to him instead of looking to God. Say amen. Thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over that's not a command. It's telling you what the results of the fall is. There's going to be conflict. She's going to be trying to control him and he's going to be trying to rule over her. He told Cain, he said, sin lieth at the door. And that sin is desiring you. It wants to control Hallelujah to the Lamb. But that conflict is a result of the fall of man. Because whenever God first made them, Genesis 2, look at it so you know that I'm in the Bible. 
Can you stay with me a few more minutes? Genesis 2. Praise the Lord, church. I told you, I told you, I'm going to do my best not to get stoned here before I leave. Okay, Genesis 2. Woo. Verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put man whom he had what? Formed. Say formed. Okay, so he formed man, right? Okay, look at verse 18. Say he formed man or Adam. All right, and then we know he took uh, the woman, uh, took the rib outside of Adam, made woman, formed woman, right? Okay, verse 18. The Lord God said it is not good that the man should be alone or lonely. I will make him a help meet for him. Say help meet. For him. Now that's King James. When you study it, he says, She's going to have power and authority. Say amen. So it's only after the fall that men start dominating or trying to rule over that wife. First Corinthians 11, go there. I'm not saying you have to believe me. I'm, I'm just asking you to hear me tonight, okay? I really, I should have probably just skipped over John 4. Because I'm showing you a, I'm showing you God coming flesh, sitting there talking to a woman and teaching her revelation and recognizing her right as a woman. Come on, her authority and even the power of choice in her life. Coming to set her free. First Corinthians 11. Verse 10, for this cause of the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Power on her head? Power? Authority? Yes. The Bible is clearly telling you in the New Testament that the woman is to have power or authority on her head. Come on, somebody. Oh, are you awake now? This passage in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 6, is teaching you there is no need for a physical veil to be on the head of the woman. Her hair is given to her instead of the veil. Say instead of the veil. The woman's covering is her hair. But the Bible says she has power on her head. It doesn't say veil on her head. It doesn't even say hair on her head there. It says power is on her head. Where'd she get that power? Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. She was equal with the man in power. Until the curse came in. So, there, but there's, so there's no need for a physical veil. Her hair is given to her for a covering. She's in right underneath. She's submitted correctly. But in that submission, she has power and authority. Not just with the husband, but with God and with angels. She's got power! Well, I don't want my woman to have power. Well, I'm sorry. He's teaching her. He's teaching her. She's the woman being restored. Okay, First Timothy 2, verse 9. Real fast, real fast. <coughs> I don't have time to teach this all. This is very, very 
deep things. First Corinthians 11 would be a, a message all by itself for me to go into history and to talk to you about where the veil came from. But Paul is lifting that requirement off the church. He said, we don't have a custom like that. We don't have a custom of a woman wearing a physical veil. Her hair is given for a covenant. She's got power with what? With God. Angels. She's subjecting herself to her God. Okay, y'all with me so far? Okay, First Timothy 2. Say praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Okay, alright, here you with me? This woman, excuse me, unheard of, being taught face to face. She has the ability to grapple with theological terms and religions and what's going on and, and, and water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus himself is speaking to her. I want you to see First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9. Praise the Lord God Almighty. I'll start with verse uh, 7. Whereunto, First Timothy 2 7, whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ and lie not. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. I will therefore that men pray, say men pray, everywhere lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. You're worshiping in spirit and in truth. The context is public prayer. Okay? The context is public prayer. Men are to lift up their hands without wrath and doubting. Men's problems are anger. Men's problems are <clears throat> doubting. When we pray, we doubt. We have to overcome doubt. We have to overcome wrath, anger. Alright? So he's talking about proper position in the church, standing there you're saying, why are you doing this? Because it's connected to the message, okay? So men in a public place are standing with holy hands lifted up before God in a public way. They are praying, right? In like manner. That word, in like manner, manner is a command. It is a command that when women come in a public assembly of worship, they are to lift up hands and pray just like the men. Just like the men stand in a public assembly and pray unto God in like manner. It's a command that that woman is to, to stand in that same place, that same way, and pray with their hands lifted up in a public way. It's a command. I'm telling you, this is unheard of. Jesus brought this and Christianity brought this. In the synagogue, you had to go in there. If you were a lady, go in there and sit down and keep your mouth shut. You could not say one word. The Jewish Talmud said no woman had the ability to teach in the synagogue. Jewish Talmud said that. The Word of God never said that. So in like manner. Now I'm not going to keep you all night, but i got to go through this. Okay? In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefaced and sobriety, not with bordered hair or gold or pearls or costly array. So when you come in and you lift up your hands, this is the way you are to do it. The man is not supposed to be doubting and full of anger. The woman is supposed to be dressed a certain way. When she comes to a public assembly, she's not supposed to be dressing up 
uh, for sexual reasons. I know you don't want to hear it, but I still got to tell it to you. She's not to come in here to get you to look at her in her beauty. It's not about that. It's not about looking at her sensually. It's about her standing and worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And she's commanded to do so. All right. So verse 10, but which becometh women professing God and his good works. Here we go. Let the woman learn. Let the woman learn. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's letting the woman learn. And we're dealing with a public setting. A public setting which is unheard of in the Jewish synagogue. It's unheard of in Greek and Roman culture. It is unheard of for a woman to be taught publicly. All right. So, but the Bible says, let her learn. Let her learn is not a, it's not, a, well, you can if you want to. It is a command. It is a command for the woman to learn. Say praise the Lord. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. Well, there it is right there, Pastor. The Bible says when she comes to church, all right, I got you, Pastor. I believe that she can be taught publicly. Okay, I'll accept that. But the Bible says in silence. So that must mean she can't say, can't say anything. The word silence here does not mean absolute silence. I can take you in the Word of God where the Bible tells you when you're making a living, man, you are to keep silent. So does that mean when you go out there and work, you're to keep complete, absolute silent and not ever say a word? No, the word here, silence, means a quiet spirit. It means a submissive spirit. It doesn't mean she's to keep her mouth shut. That's Jewish culture prejudice. She has just the same, same right that you do to be taught publicly, but when she's taught publicly, the attitude of her spirit must be like the woman at the well. She must be submissive. She must have a quiet spirit. It doesn't mean she can't talk. For all you theologians, this tape is going to go out. I don't know where it's going to go. It's going to go out. I believe God's going to send this tape. It's going to be heard. Because the, the scriptures that people take to, uh, what do you what do you call those things? These funny pictures people paint at the caricatures, the character caricatures of women that the church has made based on scriptures. They thought that she couldn't say anything in the church. It didn't even mean that she just had a quiet spirit when she was being taught. So it's the attitude of her heart. It's not telling her not to say something, big man. Well, you go to church with me, you know, you used to worship God and run around like a, you know, wild woman. When you go to church with me, you're going to sit right there and I'm going to be the one putting on the show. No, that's not Bible. Because she has the ability to hear God just like you do. She has the ability to receive the word of God just like you do. She has the ability to be taught publicly. This is Christianity. This was unheard of in Samaria. It was unheard of in Jerusalem. It was unheard of in Greek culture. It was unheard of in Roman culture. She's Isha.
Y'all knew this though, right? That's why you're just looking at me like that. But I suffer. Okay, verse 11. Let a woman learn in silence with all subjection, a quiet spirit, and she's going to be subject to who? To who? Look up here. Don't look at the kitties. Look at me. I'm giving you some help me. I've got to be kind to you. I need to get a kind face. I'm sorry. Does y'all please look at me, please? Would you please? Does it say in that verse anything about her being subject to her husband? You read into the Bible that she is to be subject to her husband. The setting is not about her husband. The setting is about the assembly, the church. She's to be subject to God. The curse caused her to look to man instead of God. She is subject to God and she's subject to her teacher. That's who the Bible is telling her to be subject to. Not to you, the husband, but to her teacher. And ultimately to God. Give God praise. Give Him praise. Verse 12. But I suffer not a woman to teach. Nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in what? Silence. Do you think all of a sudden Paul's going to change his mind? He commands the woman to teach, to be taught publicly. And he tells her the attitude she's to have when she's taught publicly. And he's telling her to worship just like the man does in the church with hands lifted up, just like the man. He's commanded it. And then all of a sudden he's going to change his mind. I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to control the man. And then he goes into an analogy going back to creation. Watch what he does. For Adam was first what? Formed. First formed. You read in that he was first created. So that makes him big man. But it doesn't say. Yeah, I know, I know, historically he was first created. But the Bible doesn't say he was first created. It says he was first formed. The word means he was the first to be taught. So Paul is not changing his mind now and saying, okay, uh, a woman shouldn't teach in the church. He's telling you she is not to teach if she's not first taught. That's why he says that the woman is to learn. Teach her, and when you teach her, and she's taught, and she keeps the right spirit and right attitude, she's subject to God, she's subject to the teacher, then she has a right, just like the man, to speak the word of God. She has the same right to teach, but she cannot teach until she's taught. So the word goes, okay, what we have is Adam was formed. The Greek word means formed in the way of teaching. So what Paul is saying is this. I suffer not, I suffer her not to teach until she's taught. He's going back to the first part of the message. Until she's taught. Until she's formed. Because Adam was first formed and taught. Eve was deceived because she wasn't taught. 
Adam was deceived because he was caught. That's what the passage means. So Paul is not forbidding the woman to stand up and teach in the church. What he's saying is you've got to look at the analogy. Adam was the one that was educated. Adam was taught. This is the reason why you need to, that the woman needs to learn is so that she can be in that place of teaching. But if she's not taught, Paul is saying, I suffer not the woman to teach. We've got to get this straightened out. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Two problems with a woman teaching. One is, she's not to teach if she's not taught. Number two, she's easily deceived because she's not taught. But once she's formed like Adam, once she's taught like Adam, now, there's no problem. Paul's not changing his mind. Go at it. Prophesy in the house with your head covered. Pray with your hands lifted up just like men. Learn. Be taught in the church. And then when you get taught, no problem with your teaching, but not in an untaught way. You can't teach if you're not taught. Okay, that's the point. That's the context here. Say praise the Lord. Verse 15, notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness, holiness with sobriety. Isn't that beautiful? Give the Lord some praise. Okay, okay, I'm almost done. First Corinthians 14, very quick, real quick. We, we, I don't know why we're in a hurry anyway. We'll go out there, it's going to be, the snow's going to be five foot deep. And we're not going to be able to go home anyway, so we might as well stay all night. First Corinthians 14, are y'all ready? Let the woman keep silence in the churches. For it is not permitted unto them to speak. But they are commanded to be under obedience also, as also saith the law. Did you, now listen to me carefully. He is quoting, am I losing you? Are you getting tired? He's telling, he's quoting them what they wrote to him. They are caught up in the Jewish Talmud that forbids a woman to speak in the synagogue. They are going around teaching in the church that a woman can't speak in the church, that she's to keep silence in the church. They're quoting Jewish Talmud. Paul says, to be under obedience as also saith the law, that a woman is to keep silent in the church if it's not permitted them to speak. There's no way in the Old Testament law that that... There's no place in the Old Testament law that that is ever recorded. You can't find me one verse in the Old Testament that tells you that a woman can't speak in the church. What he's talking about is the oral law of the Jews, the Talmud. That's the only place you can find it. The Talmud said they can't speak in the synagogue. So when Paul writes this, he says, let your women keep silent in the churches. For it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is a shame for a woman to speak in the church. What? You see, you got to read it like the way it says. You don't read it as coming from Paul as a command. He said, what? 
You can't be serious. That's the way. That's the way you put it in modern day vernacular. You can't be serious. What? Came the word of God out from you or came it unto you only? If any man think himself to be a prophet, she said, you men think that God only talks to you? You think that you're the only one that can get the word of God? He said, what are you talking about? Are you serious? This is not what Paul was saying. He was quoting what they were saying and questioning them. Talking about. You think you're the only one that can hear God? She can hear God better than you can hear God. I know it grates you the wrong way, but that's the truth. If you don't like it, do you? I got a question for you, brother. When you were about three years old, who was it that taught you? Okay, let me go to another man. When you were about three years old, who was it in your life that spent time with you and taught you? Your mother. I can't believe that, that a, mo- that a woman would have the right to teach you. If she had a right to teach you then, she still got a right to teach you today. What? Think you're the only one that can hear God? You read and you caricaturize, caricaturize women. If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things I have written unto you are the commandments of the Lord. But if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. He said, you want to keep on being ignorant and keep walking around quoting these things that are in the Jewish town? He said, you want to stay ignorant? He said, just keep on being ignorant. You and your ignorant self. No, I'm not going to say toothy. Wherefore, brethren, coming to, prop- to prophesy, forbid not to speak with tongues, that all things be done decently, hand in order. He said, the things I read, let them be the commandments of God. He said, when the woman prophesies her, he said, here's what you need. The woman has to be covered. But she can stand up and prophesy in the church. She can preach in the church. You want to be ignorant on the subject, be ignorant on the subject. He said, I've already told you what I've said. She's got power. She's got authority. She can receive the word of God as well. You don't have a monopoly on God. Uh, the women in this church are about to, they're about to start throwing stuff at me. Whoa, go ahead. Preach it, Pastor. I know you can't stand it. I know you want to throw a book at me. Preach it, Pastor. Whoa, God, give me a plant. Say, praise the Lord. All right, let me finish John 4. Thanks, man. It's 
So he's sitting there and he's doing something that is unheard of. He's teaching this woman in public. Praise the Lord Jesus Christ. I said, praise the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the bridegroom. You are his Isha. This Samaritan woman is a time of a woman being restored. Back to God's original intention. And it don't give you a right to rebel against your husband. You serve, serve against his authority. That but I'm just telling you, you're equal in the eyes of God. And yes, I do believe he has the final say-so in the house as far as decisions are concerned. But that doesn't mean he is right. doesn't mean he's right. Woo. <laughs> I better take a drink of water before I get stoned. I was up in the middle of the night all night studying this stuff. All night long. This is like I preach it to you. That sets you free. Hallelujah to the Lamb. It'll set the man free. So, you know, she, what do you think, hon? Talk to God. But you need to be the one that gives me my answer. Talk to God. And you talk to God and I'll talk to God. And when we both talk to God, we'll come back together and see what God said. No, no. No, I got to come always out looking and dipping in my heels all the time. Biting the back of my legs. You know, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Talk to God. Seek God. Say praise the Lord. Okay. Now, Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am, am, I'm the Lord. I'm God come in the flesh. I'm the who of worship. And if I'm the who of worship, he must be God. Woo! Glory to God. <clears throat> now, if, if, if what I've preached you at this point hasn't confused you, you really think you'll be confused. Because she's going to be the first apostle. She's going to be sent to the Samaritans to preach. And she's not a man. She's going to teach after she's been taught. But not before she has a revelation of him. Because if she did, she'd be deceived. So now the now watch what he'll do the disciples. They've been on backstage too. And I promise you I'm almost done. They've been backstage too. We've been in the front stage. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no man said, what, what seekest thou or why talkest thou with her? We better, we better not question him. Hey, what are you doing talking to that woman in public? We don't do that. Men don't do that. Women don't do that. God, the disciples said, we better leave this alone. We know who he is. But they were shocked. The 
The woman then left her water pot, say left her water pot, and went her way into the city and said to the men, you got a woman preaching to men. I'm going to get that finger going. I I feel that finger going on. A woman preacher evangelizing Samaria. He is a soul winner. She's a soul winner. She leaves her pot there. Why'd she leave her pot? Yeah. It's not like walking off and leaving a cup. Like this, you know, you drink the water and you get done and leave it there. In that culture, that pot represented her body and her soul. In that culture, if you break a pot, they bury the pot. Because it represents the body of the person. And what's inside of the pot represents the soul of the person. That's why in that culture, if they broke a pot, they not only would bury the pieces of the pottery, but they would get it and scratch it. If they had the, the itch, a disease, Job scratched himself with the pot shirt, a piece of broken pottery. You know why he did that? Because he believed his soul was in that pot. And he believed that it transferred virtue of healing into his flesh when he scratched his So when she left that pot, she's surrendering her soul to him. And she's saying, I'm not going to need that pot anymore because I have found living water. Speak it up. Speak it up. Unto everlasting life. I don't need it anymore. He's the fulfillment of the wells of the Bible. He's the one the wells preach to. If you had time, some of you preachers out there, you want to preach something powerful? Look at every well in the Bible and every one of them speaking of Jesus Christ and preach on the well. It's out for Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of all the wells of the Bible. Here we go. She don't need her water pot anymore. Went her way into the city and said to the who the men said the men, and the word men here this is okay. We'll say I can accept that pastor because she's just going to talk to the men in the city. But the word men there means the leaders of the city. So she has enough authority not to just go talk to men as a woman. She has authority to go and talk to the leaders of the city. Woo! Having been taught, now she teaches. Saith to the men. Now keep in mind the disciples just showed up. They got through the McDonald's and they showed back up. And she's not there anymore. She's gone to the city and she's speaking to the leaders of the city, the men of the city. She says, come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ or the Messiah? He uncovered my sin. He uncovered my life right before my eyes. He made me deal with my life. He made me deal with the matters of life. But took me beyond that to himself. And showed me how to worship God in spirit and in truth. Showed me how to go beyond water. Natural water. And how to go beyond buckets and ropes. And deepness of wells. He satisfied my thirst. And he told me all my life. 
she wasn't offended by that. You know the reason why a lot of people in the church never never have powerful movements of God and worship and contact with the Lord is because they got so many, they're so offended. They're offended by everything. They don't lost or anything to address it. They all get offended about it. If you stop getting offended, God will take you in the things of the Spirit like you have never seen before. But just about the time you start tra traversing time, you start going beyond time in the Spirit, and God begins to reveal Himself to you. And He's setting you up to start using you to teach, and you have a problem. And you, you go back, you go back. And not this woman here, not this woman, not this Ishai, not this bride. Oh, hallelujah to the Lamb. Praise the Lord. Come see a man. I'm going to point you to a man. Now remember, she's been married five times, so she knows about men. And the one she's living with is not her own. She knows about men. Come see a man. Which told me all things that ever I did is not this the Christ, the Messiah. He's the one we've been looking for, the one who had revealed God to us. But he's more than that. He's God from in the He's the one we worship. What's going to happen now, these men, after hearing the message coming from the mouth of this? I mean, then they went out of the city and came unto him. Get a picture. They're flocking out of the city of Sychar, man. And when they do, i got a huge picture on my computer. When they worship at Mount Garrison, you ought to see the way they dressed. They dressed in pure white robes and tried their best to worship Yahweh in white robes. And all of a sudden, Jesus looks up and he sees these men of the city walking out in their white robes. And what does he say? All as a result of this woman teaching. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. Okay. So Jesus, all right, you got, you got the picture. Master, eat. You got to be hungry. Here, eat this McDonald's cheeseburger. Eat drink this milkshake, this Coke, French fries. No, he don't do that. He wouldn't eat something that contaminated his body. Fill it with toxins and... Master eat. See, now the disciples, all they can see is physical. Food, eating, natural things. Jesus says, I have meat to eat that you know not of. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me. There's no joy like the joy of a soul winner. Jesus must needs go through Samaria to win one woman. 
And when he wins that one woman, he ends up converting the city. And then after that, in Acts chapter 8, they go and preach in that city. There's all the already the roots of salvation in that city. And a powerful revival breaks out. The joy of a soul winner. I want to tell you right now, if you ever become a soul winner, you'll have joy like nobody else in the church. I won't have to tell you that's to win souls. I won't have to preach to you to win souls. If you ever win a soul, you'll never stop winning souls. There's nothing like the joy of a soul winner. I have meat to eat that you know not of. That's what Jesus said. That's why he came. To win souls, win souls, win souls. And to finish his work. Say not ye there are yet four months, and then come at the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already for harvest. It's time for an eternal harvest. It's time for a harvest of souls. Look on the fields. In that culture, there were four months separation from sowing and reaping. He said, look on the fields. They are already white, ready to be harvested. Look at these people walking in their white robes to Jesus Christ. They're white, ready to be harvested. Oh, you didn't think there could be revival here. Jesus said, oh, listen to me carefully. Jesus said, now you don't have to have a time lapse. He said, now there is no delay. There's no time where you sow and then you wait four months and then you reap. He said, don't say four months. He said, look, it's already time for harvest. And a place you didn't think revival was possible. He said, I'm bypassing time constraints. I'm bypassing laws of nature. I'm bringing in a harvest. I'm bypassing a four-month time. Look. He said, I'm a soul winner, and I'm reaping. As soon as I sow it, I'm reaping. And he said, look, this woman, as soon as she went to reap, she sowed. No delay in an impossible place. You say, if we can get so-and-so here, we'll have revival. No, I tell you, say not this four months. Lift up your eyes. The fields are white, ready to be harvested. Don't say when we get it all together and get it all straight. No, say not for months. He's telling you right now, you can have revival right now. If some of you just get out there and start teaching Bible studies. If you'll just become a soul winner instead of waiting for people to come to you. You get out there and say, come see a man. You will have a harvest with no delay. If you don't have a harvest of souls in your life, it's because you haven't sowed one thing. If you'll get out there and get busy sowing seed, you'll say, well, I'm not going to have harvest here. It's impossible. There was a revival in Samaria. Give the Lord praise in the house. I heard about a preacher, D.L. Moody. I heard it on the radio. i got to quit. I believe it's D.L. Moody. He got burned out. He was so tired. And so I think he went to London, if I remember correctly. I could be wrong on the city. So you'll have to go back and check me on this. But I think he went to London in order to find a little bit of rest because he was burned out. He went and sat in a church. And the minister recognized D.L. Moody and said, D.L. Moody, I want you to come and speak tonight. D.L. Moody was so tired. 
But he spoke anyway. And listen, I believe that if I'm correctly correct, the next two years, revival broke out in an unexpected place under D.L. Moody's ministry. He later found out that there was a woman that had been praying, I believe it was in London, for God to use D.L. Moody to bring him over to London and, and to use D.L. Moody to bring revival to that nation. And for two years, she prayed for him every day. And God used him in a time of a burnout situation to bring a revival. Say not! There's four months. Then cometh the harvest. It's time now. 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 For this church's harvest. Now's the time. It's this time. We just got to get out there. We just got to get out there. Like you are. Like you are. They just got to be back up with prayer. Of course, of the disciples, one to another, hath any man brought him not to eat? Jesus said unto him, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Say not, say not ye. There are yet four months, and then come at the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. For they are wide already to be harvested. He didn't say that the harvest wasn't ready. He's going to say where the problem is is the laborers are not ready. The problem for us today in having revival is not because the harvest is not ready. The problem with us today is some of you haven't made up your mind to be ready to work in those fields yet. That's what needs to get ready. We need to get ready, brother. We need to get ready. The harvest doesn't need to get ready. We need to get ready. He's looking for laborers to go in the fields. That's what needs to get ready. It's the laborers, not the harvest. He said they're already the harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto eternal life. He said it's time for the harvesting, the reaping, and the reward. That both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And here is that saying true. One soweth, another reapeth. I sent you to reap that wherein you bestowed no labor. Other men labor, and you're entered into their labors. John the Baptist preached. You're entering into his labors. Jesus just got through preaching to this woman. You're fixing to enter into her labors, into his labors. People gone before you. You're Entering into their labors. You're receiving the harvest because somebody else labored. <coughs> Hallelujah to the Lamb. He said, I sent you to reap wherein you bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and you're entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of the city believed on him. Why? For the same of the woman which testified, he told me. All that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were coming to him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. For that Jewish rabbi to stay in that city for two days meant his death. But he's not in a Jerusalem jurisdiction, he's a Galilee, Galilean. He's going to stay there for two days. 
One day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Two thousand years, according to two thousand years, God's going to turn the Gentiles and separate a church out of the Gentiles for His name's sake. But after those two days, He's going to turn back to the Jews and start bringing revival to the Jews, and the rapture's going to take place. The harvest is coming. Give God praise in the house. <laughs> Hallelujah to the Lamb. <laughs> And Hosea, he said, after two days will he revive us, and the third day he'll raise us up. That's what the Jews said. You're at the close of 2,000 years. You're moving to the close of 2,000 years. Jesus says, you turn back to the Jews. And that's exactly what he will do in the next few verses after this, Brother Mark. He'll go up to Galilee, but then he will eventually, he'll go back down to, he'll go back to dealing with the Jews again. Say, praise the Lord. Hallelujah to the Lord. You'll see what I'm saying. But Jesus himself testified that a, okay, whoa, hallelujah. <clears throat> he bowed there two days, and many more believed because of his own words. And said to the woman, Now we believe not because of thy saying, for we have heard of him ourselves, and know that this indeed is the Christ. But he's more than the Christ. He's the Savior of the world. That's the first time the full title, the Savior of the, of the world, is given to Jesus Christ. And it was given to him by snakes. He picked it up. And he started walking with that title. But it didn't come out of the mouth of Jews out of Jerusalem. It came from Samaritans. Give the Lord praise in the house. <laughs> Now, after two days, he departed thence and went <coughs> into Galilee. <coughs> For Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. He had to leave Jerusalem. They were rejecting him. So he goes to Samaria. God bless your heart. I hope I didn't confuse you too much. If you're confused, you, you ought not be. She is an example of what is in the heart of man. In closing, did you notice... This woman believed without one sign. John 2 said, Many believed on him when they saw the miracles that he did. This woman believed on him without a miracle, without a sign. Her faith was real. God bless your heart. I hope it's been a blessing to you. Father, I love you and praise you and worship you tonight.